0: Chapter Eight of Sunshine Sketches. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Sherman. Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town by Stephen Leacock. Chapter Eight: The Foreordained Detachment of Zena Pepperly and Peter Pupkin. Zena Pepperly used to sit reading novels on the piazza of the judge's house, half hidden by the Virginia creepers. At times the book would fall upon her lap, and there was such a look of unstilled yearning in her violet eyes that it did not entirely disappear, even when she picked up the apple that lay beside her and took another bite out of it. With hands clasped, she would sit there dreaming all the beautiful daydreams of girlhood, When you saw that faraway look in her eyes, it meant that she was dreaming that a plumed and armoured knight was rescuing her from the embattled keep of a castle beside the Danube. At other times she was being borne away by an Algerian corsair over the blue waters of the Mediterranean, and was reaching out her arms towards France to say farewell to it. Sometimes, when you noticed a sweet look of resignation that seemed to rest upon her features... It meant that Lord Ronald de Chevreux was kneeling at her feet, and that she was telling him to rise, that her humbler birth must ever be a bar to their happiness, and Lord Ronald was getting into an awful state about it, as English peers do at the least suggestion of anything of the sort. Or, if it wasn't that, then her lover had just returned to her side, tall and soldierly and sunburned, after fighting for ten years in the Sudan for her sake.' and had come back to ask her for her answer, and to tell her that for ten years her face had been with him even in the watches of the night. He was asking her for a sign, any kind of sign. Ten years in the Sudan entitles them to a sign. And Zina was plucking a white rose, just one, from her hair when she would hear her father's step on the piazza and make a grab for The Pioneers of Tecumseh Township and start reading it like mad. She was always, as I say, being rescued and being borne away and being parted and reaching out her arms to France and to Spain and saying good-bye forever to Valladolid or the grey old towers of Hohenbrandtwein. And I don't mean that she was in the least exceptional or romantic— because all the girls in Mariposa were just like that. An Algerian corsair could have come into the town and had a dozen of them for the asking. And as for a wounded English officer, well, perhaps it's better not to talk about it outside, or the little town would become a regular military hospital. Because, mind you, the Mariposa girls are all right. You've only to look at them to realize that. You see, you can get in Mariposa a print dress of pale blue or pale pink for a dollar twenty that looks infinitely better than anything you ever see in the city, especially if you can wear with it a broad straw hat and a background of maple trees and the green grass of a tennis court. And if you remember, too, that these are cultivated girls who've all been to the Mariposa High School and can do decimal fractions. "'you will understand that an Algerian corsair "'would sharpen his scimitar at the very sight of them. "'Don't think either that they're all dying to get married, "'because they are not. "'I don't say they wouldn't take an errant knight "'or a a buccaneer or a Hungarian refugee, "'but for the ordinary marriages of ordinary people "'they feel nothing but a pitying disdain. "'So it is that each one of them, in due time, "'marries an enchanted prince.' and goes to live in one of the little enchanted houses in the lower part of the town. I don't know whether you know it, but you can rent an enchanted house in Mariposa for eight dollars a month, and some of the most completely enchanted are the cheapest. As for the enchanted princes, they find them in the strangest places, where you never expected to see them, working under a spell, you understand, in drugstores and printing offices, and even selling things in shops. But to be able to find them "'you have first to read ever so many novels "'about Sir Galahad and the errant quest and that sort of thing. "'Naturally, then, Zena Pepperly, as she sat on the piazza, "'dreamed of bandits and of wounded officers "'and of Lord Ronalds riding on foam-flecked chargers. "'But that she ever dreamed of a junior bank teller in a daffodil blazer riding past on a bicycle "'is pretty hard to imagine.' So, when Mr. Pupkin came tearing past up the slope of Oneida Street, at a speed that proved that he wasn't riding there merely to pass the house, I don't suppose that Zena Pepperly was aware of his existence. That may be a slight exaggeration. She knew, perhaps, that he was the new junior teller in the exchange bank, and that he came from the Maritime Provinces and that nobody knew who his people were, and that he'd never been in a canoe in his life till he came to Mariposa, and that he sat four pews back in Dean Drone's church, and that his salary was eight hundred dollars. Beyond that, she didn't know a thing about him. She presumed, however, that the reason why he went past so fast was because he didn't dare to go slow. This, of course, was perfectly correct. Ever since the day when Mr. Pupkin met Zena in the main street, he used to come past the house on his bicycle just after bank hours. He would have gone past twenty times a day, but he was afraid to. As he came up Oneida Street, he used to pedal faster and faster. He never meant to, but he couldn't help it, till he went past the piazza where Zena was sitting at an awful speed, with his little yellow blazer flying in the wind. In a second he disappeared in a buzz and a cloud of dust, and the momentum of it carried him clear out into the country for miles and miles before he ever dared to pause or look back. Then Mr. Pupkin would ride in a huge circuit about the country, trying to think he was looking at the crops, and sooner or later his bicycle would be turned towards the town again and headed for Oneida Street— and would get going quicker and quicker and quicker, till the pedals whirled round with a buzz, and he came past the judge's house again like a bullet out of a gun. He rode fifteen miles to pass the house twice, and even then it took all the nerve that he had. The people on Oneida Street thought that Mr. Pupkin was crazy, but Zena Pepperly knew that he was not. Already, you see, there was a sort of dim parallel between the passing of the bicycle and the last ride of Tancred the Inconsolable along the banks of the Danube. I've already mentioned, I think, how Mr. Pupkin and Zena Pepperly first came to know one another. Like everything else about them, it was a sheer matter of coincidence, quite inexplicable, unless you understand that these things are foreordained. That, of course, is the way with foreordained affairs, and that's where they differ from ordinary love. I won't even try to describe how Mr. Pupkin felt when he first spoke with Zena, and sat beside her as they copied out the endless chain letter asking for ten cents. They wrote out, as I said, no less than eight of the letters between them, and they found out that their handwritings were so alike that you could hardly tell them apart, except that Pupkin's letters were round and Zena's letters were pointed, and Pupkin wrote straight up and down, and Zena wrote on a slant. Beyond that the writing was so alike that it was the strangest coincidence in the world. Of course, when they made figures, it was different, and, and Pupkin explained to Zena that in the bank you have to be able to make a seven so that it doesn't look like a nine. So, as I say, they wrote the letters all afternoon, and when it was over, they walked up Oneida Street together, ever so slowly. When they got near the house, Zena asked Pupkin to come in to tea was such an easy, off-hand way, that you couldn't have told that she was half an hour late and was taking awful chances on the judge. Pupkin hadn't had time to say yes before the judge appeared at the door, just as they were stepping up onto the piazza, and he had a table napkin in his hand, and the dynamite sparks were flying from his spectacles as he called out, GREAT HEAVEN! ZINA! WHY, IN EVERLASTING BLAZES CAN'T YOU GET INTO TEA AT A CHRISTIAN HOUR? ZINA GAVE ONE LOOK OF APPEAL TO PUPKIN, And Pupkin looked one glance of comprehension, and turned and fled down Oneida Street. And if the scene wasn't quite as dramatic as the renunciation of Tancred the troubadour, it at least had something of the same elements in it. Pupkin walked home to his supper at the Mariposa house on air, and that evening there was a gentle distance in his manner towards Sadie, the dining-room girl, that I suppose no bank-clerk in Mariposa ever showed before. It was like Sir Galahad talking with the tire-women of Queen Guinevere, and receiving huckleberry pie at their hands. After that, Mr. Pupkin and Zena Pepperly constantly met together. They played tennis as partners on the grass court behind Dr. Gallagher's house. The Mariposa Tennis Club rent it, you remember, for fifty cents a month. And Pupkin used to perform perfect prodigies of valour, leaping in the air to serve with his little body hooked like a letter S. Sometimes, too, they went out on Lake Wissanotti in the evening in Pupkin's canoe, with Zena sitting in the bow, and Pupkin paddling in the stern, and they went out ever so far, and it was after dark, and the stars were shining before they came home. Zena would look at the stars and say how infinitely far away they seemed, and Pupkin would realize that a girl with a mind like that couldn't have any use for a fool such as him, Zena used to ask him to point out the Pleiades and Jupiter and Ursa Minor, and Pupkin showed her exactly where they were. That impressed them both tremendously, because Pupkin didn't know that Zena remembered the names out of the astronomy book at her boarding school, and Zena didn't know that Pupkin simply took a chance on where the stars were. And ever so many times they talked so intimately that Pupkin came mighty near telling her about his home in the Maritime Provinces, and about his father and mother, and then kicked himself that he hadn't the manliness to speak straight out about it and take the consequences. Please don't imagine from any of this that the course of Mr. Pupkin's love ran smooth. On the contrary, Pupkin himself felt that it was absolutely hopeless from the start there were, it might be admitted, certain things that seemed to indicate progress. In the course of the months of June and July and August, he had taken Zena out in his canoe thirty-one times, allowing an average of two miles for each evening. Pupkin had paddled Zena sixty-two miles, or more than a hundred thousand yards. That surely was something. He had played tennis with her on sixteen afternoons. Three times, HE HAD LEFT HIS TENNIS RACKET UP AT THE JUDGE'S HOUSE IN ZINA'S CHARGE, AND ONCE HE HAD, WITH HER FULL CONSENT, LEFT HIS BICYCLE THERE ALL NIGHT. THIS MUST COUNT FOR SOMETHING. NO GIRL COULD TRIFLE WITH A MAN TO THE EXTENT OF HAVING HIS BICYCLE LEANING AGAINST THE VERANDA POST ALL NIGHT AND MEAN NOTHING BY IT. MORE THAN THAT, HE HAD BEEN TO TEA AT THE JUDGE'S HOUSE fourteen TIMES and seven times he'd been asked by Lillian Drone to the rectory when Zena was coming, and five times by Nora Gallagher to tea at the doctor's house, because Zena was there. Altogether, he'd eaten so many meals where Zena was that his meal ticket at the Mariposa lasted nearly double its proper time, and the face of Sadie, the dining-room girl, had grown to wear a look of melancholy resignation, sadder than romance. Still more than that, "'Pupkin had bought for Zena, reckoning it altogether, about two buckets of ice cream and perhaps half a bushel of chocolate. Not that Pupkin grudged the expense of it. On the contrary, over and above the ice cream and the chocolate, he'd bought her a white waistcoat and a walking stick with a gold top, a lot of new neckties and a pair of patent leather boots. That is, they were all bought on account of her, which is the same thing.' Add to all this that Pupkin and Zena had been to the Church of England church nearly every Sunday evening for two months, and one evening they'd even gone to the Presbyterian church for fun, which, if you know Mariposa, you will realize to be a wild sort of escapade that ought to speak volumes. Yet, in spite of this, Pupkin felt that the thing was hopeless— which only illustrates the dreadful ups and downs, the wild alternations of hope and despair that characterize an exceptional affair of this sort. Yes, it was hopeless. Every time that Pupkin watched Zena praying in church, he knew that she was too good for him. Every time that he came to call for her and found her reading Browning and Omar Khayyam, he knew that she was too clever for him. And every time that he saw her at all, he realized that she was too beautiful for him. You see, Pupkin knew that he wasn't a hero. When Zena would clasp her hands and talk rapturously about crusaders and soldiers and firemen and heroes generally, Pupkin knew just where he came in. Not in it, that was all. If a war could have broken out in Mariposa, or the judge's house had been invaded by the Germans, he might have had a chance. But as it was, hopeless. Then there was Zena's father. Heaven knows Pupkin tried hard to please the judge. He agreed with every theory that Judge Pepperly advanced, and that took a pretty pliable intellect in itself. They denounced female suffrage one day, and they favoured it the next. One day the judge would claim that the labor movement was eating out the heart of the country, and the next day he would hold that the hope of the world lay in the organization of the toiling masses. Pupkin shifted his opinions like the glass in a kaleidoscope. Indeed, the only things on which he was allowed to maintain a steadfast conviction were the purity of the Conservative Party of Canada and the awful wickedness of the recall of judges." but with all that the judge was hardly civil to Pupkin. He hadn't asked him to the house till Zena brought him there, though as a rule all the bank clerks in Mariposa treated Judge Pepperly's premises as their own. He used to sit and sneer at Pupkin after he had gone till Zena would throw down the pioneers of Tecumseh Township in a temper and flounce off the piazza to her room, after which the judge's manner would change instantly.' and he would relight his corncob pipe, and sit and positively beam with contentment. In all of which there was something so mysterious as to prove that Mr. Pupkin's chances were hopeless. Nor was that all of it. Pupkin's salary was eight hundred dollars a year, and the exchange bank limit for marriage was a thousand. I suppose you were aware of the grinding capitalistic tyranny of the banks in Mariposa, whereby marriage is put beyond the reach of ever so many mature and experienced men of nineteen and twenty and twenty-one, who are compelled to go on eating on a meal ticket at the Mariposa house and living over the bank to suit the whim of a group of capitalists. Whenever Pupkin thought of this two hundred dollars, he understood all that it meant by social unrest— In fact, he interpreted all forms of social discontent in terms of it—Russian anarchism, German socialism, the labor movement, Henry George, Lloyd George. He understood the whole lot of them by thinking of his two hundred dollars. When I tell you that at this period Mr. Pupkin read memoirs of the great revolutionists, and even thought of blowing up Henry Mullins with dynamite, you can appreciate his state of mind.' but not even by all these hindrances and obstacles to his love for Zena Pepperly would Peter Popkin have been driven to commit suicide. Oh, yes, he committed it three times, as I'm going to tell you, had it not been for another thing that he knew stood once and for all and in cold reality between him and Zena. He felt it in a sort of way as soon as he knew her, Each time that he tried to talk to her about his home and his father and mother and found that something held him back, he realized more and more the kind of thing that stood between them. Most of all did he realize it with a sudden sickness of heart, when he got word that his father and mother wanted to come to Mariposa to see him, and he had all he could do to head them off from it. Why? Why stop them? The reason was, simple enough, that Pupkin was ashamed of them, bitterly ashamed. The picture of his mother and father turning up in Mariposa and being seen by his friends there, and going up to the Pepperleys' house, made him feel faint with shame. No, I don't say it wasn't wrong. It only shows what difference of fortune, the difference of being rich and being poor, means in this world." You, perhaps, have been so lucky that you cannot appreciate what it means to feel shame at the station of your own father and mother. You think it doesn't matter, that honesty and kindliness of heart are all that counts. That only shows that you've never known some of the bitterest feelings of people less fortunate than yourself. So it was with Mr. Pupkin. When he thought of his father and mother turning up in Mariposa, his face reddened with unworthy shame. He could just picture the scene. He could see them getting out of their limousine touring car, with the chauffeur holding open the door for them, and his father asking for a suite of rooms. Just think of it, a suite of rooms at the Mariposa house. The very thought of it turned him ill. "'What? You've mistaken my meaning. Ashamed of them because they were poor? Good heavens, no, but because they were rich.' and not rich in the sense in which they use the term in Mariposa, where a rich person merely means a man who has money enough to build a house with a piazza and to have everything he wants, but rich in the other sense, motor cars, Ritz hotels, steam yachts, summer islands, and and all that sort of thing. Why, Pupkin's father, what's the use of trying to conceal it any longer, was the senior partner in the law firm of Pupkin, Pupkin, and Pupkin, "'If you know the Maritime Provinces at all, you've heard of the Pupkins. "'The name's a household word from Chittabucto to Chittabecto. "'And for the matter of that, the law firm and the fact that Pupkin Sr. "'had been an attorney general was the least part of it. "'Attorney General? Why, there's no money in that. It's, "'It's no better than the Senate. "'No, no, Pupkins Sr., like so many lawyers, was practically a promoter, "'and he blew companies like bubbles.' and when he wasn't in the maritime provinces he was in boston and new york raising money and floating loans and when they had no money left in new york he floated it in london and when he had it he floated it on top of big rafts of lumber on the miramichi and codfish on the grand banks and lesser fish in the fundy bay You've heard, perhaps, of the Tidal Transportation Company and Fundy Fisheries Corporation and the Paspebiak Pulp and Paper Unlimited? Well, all of those were Popkin Sr. under other names. So just imagine him in Mariposa. Wouldn't he be utterly foolish there? Just imagine him meeting Jim Elliot and treating him like a druggist merely because he ran a drugstore or speaking to Jefferson Thorpe as if he were a barber, simply because he shaved for money. Why, a man like that could ruin young Pupkin and Mariposa in half a day, and Pupkin knew it. That wouldn't matter so much. But think of the Pepperleys and Zena. Everything would be over with them at once. Pupkin knew just what the judge thought of riches and luxuries— HOW OFTEN HAD HE HEARD THE JUDGE PASS SENTENCES OF LIFE IMPRISONMENT ON PIERPONT MORGAN AND MR. ROCKEFELLER. HOW OFTEN HAD PUPKIN HEARD HIM SAY THAT ANY MAN WHO RECEIVED MORE THAN THREE THOUSAND DOLLARS A YEAR, THAT WAS THE JUDICIAL SALARY IN THE Missinaba DISTRICT, WAS A MERE ROBBER, UNFIT TO SHAKE THE HAND OF AN HONEST MAN. BITTER, I SHOULD THINK HE WAS. Oh, he was not so bitter, perhaps, as Mr. Muddleson, the principal of the Mariposa High School, who said that any man who received more than fifteen hundred dollars was a public enemy. He was certainly not so bitter as Trelawney, the postmaster, who said that any man who got from society more than thirteen hundred dollars, apart from a legitimate increase in recognition of a successful election, was a danger to society. Still, he was bitter. They all were in Mariposa, Pupkin could just imagine how they would despise his father. And Zina, that was the worst of all. How often had Pupkin heard her say that she simply hated diamonds, wouldn't wear them, despised them, wouldn't give a thank you for a whole tiara of them? As for motor-cars and steam-yachts, well, it was pretty plain that that sort of thing had no chance with Zina Pepperly. Why, she had told Pupkin one night in the canoe that she would only marry a man who was poor and had his way to make, and would hew down difficulties for her sake. And when Pupkin couldn't answer the argument, she was quite cross and silent all the way home. What was Peter Pupkin doing then at eight hundred dollars in a bank in Mariposa? (laughs) If you ask that, It means that you know nothing of the life of the Maritime Provinces, and the sturdy temper of the people. I suppose there are no people in the world who hate luxury and extravagance and that sort of thing quite as much as the Maritime Province people. And of them, no one hated luxury more than Pupkin Senior. Uh, Don't mistake the man. He wore a long sealskin coat in winter, yes, but mark you, not as a matter of luxury, but merely as a question of his lungs.' He smoked, I admitted, a thirty-five-cent cigar, not because he preferred it, but merely through a delicacy of the thorax that made it imperative. He drank champagne at lunch, I concede the point, not in the least from the enjoyment of it, but simply on account of a peculiar affection of the tongue and lips that positively dictated it. His own longing, and his wife shared it, was for the simple, simple life. An island somewhere, with birds and trees— They'd bought three or four islands, one in the St. Lawrence and two in the Gulf, and one off the coast of Maine, looking for this sort of thing. Popkin Sr. often said that he wanted to have some place that would remind him of the little old farm up the Aroostook where he was brought up. He often bought little old farms just to try them, but they always turned out to be so near a city that he cut them into real estate lots without even having had time to look at them. But, and this is where the emphasis lay... In the matter of luxury for his only son, Peter, Pupkin Sr. was a maritime province man right to the core, with all the hardihood of the United Empire loyalists ingrained in him. No luxury for that boy, no, sir. From his childhood, Pupkin Sr. had undertaken, at the least sign of luxury, to tan it out of him, after the fashion still in vogue in the provinces. Then he sent him to an old-fashioned school to get it thumped out of him and after that he'd put him for a year on a Nova Scotia schooner to get it knocked out of him. If, after all that, young Pupkin, even when he came to Mariposa, wore cameo pins and daffodil blazers, and broke out into ribbed silk saffron ties on payday, it only shows that the old Adam still needs further tanning, even in the maritime provinces. Young Pupkin, of course, was to have gone into law. That was his father's cherished dream, and would have made the firm Pupkin, 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 and Pupkin, as it ought to have been. But young Peter was kept out of the law by the fool system of examinations devised since his father's time. Hence there was nothing for it but to sling him into a bank. Sling him was, I think, the expression. So his father decided that if Pupkin was to be slung, he should be slung good and far, clean into Canada, You know the way they use that word in the maritime provinces. And to sling Pupkin he called in the services of an old friend, a man after his own heart, just as violent as himself, who used to be at the law school in the city with Pupkin Sr. thirty years ago. So this friend, who happened to live in Mariposa, and who was a violent man, said at once, Edward by Jehoshaphat, send the boy up here. So that is how Pupkin came to Mariposa, and if when he got there his father's friend gave no sign, and treated the boy with roughness and incivility, that may have been, for all I know, a continuation of the tanning process of the Maritime people. Did I mention that the Pepperly family, generations ago, had taken up land near the Aroostook, and that it was from there the judge's father came to Tecumseh Township? Uh, perhaps not, but it doesn't matter." But, surely, after such reminiscences as these, the awful things that are impending over Mr. Pupkin must be kept for another chapter. End of chapter 8